0: You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. Morning. See a lot of fans going this morning. That is a, uh, that's a good move. Uh, My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. I'd love to get the opportunity to meet you. I know we've got lots of newer people around here that haven't met you yet, uh, so never feel bad about coming up and just saying hi, introducing yourself. Uh, That's something I'm eager for. Uh, If you're newer with us, I've got to warn you, today is actually week 15 in a 16-week sermon series. Uh, So this is the second to last week. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount all summer. And uh, I've, I've loved how God has used uh, this teaching series in my own life, but also in the life of our church. And uh, here, as we get close to the end, uh, what I want to just point out is this idea that Jesus did not preach the Sermon on the Mount to give us a list of good Bible verses to memorize, He didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount so that we could learn some nice theological insights. He didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount so you could shrug your shoulders and say, man, that Jesus really is a good teacher. He preached the Sermon on the Mount so that we would follow him. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount is truly the definition of what's called a paradigm shift where you can't just interact with it and live your life the same way. It's, it's, it's kind of like this fundamental different uh, way of thinking. I mean, imagine that you were there on the mountain. We've been saying we've been spending you know, the summer on the mount with Jesus. But imagine you were actually there 2,000 years ago when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And you're walking home afterwards... I mean, you can imagine, like, the, the conversations people would have on the walk home, maybe shaking their heads, like, it's just this mind-blowing kinds of teaching, and I would say 2,000 years later, it is still that much of a paradigm shift. Uh, the classic example of a paradigm shift uh, we know is Nicholas Copernicus, right? You realize that it, it wasn't that long ago. Five hundred years ago that the dominant worldview was that the entire universe revolved around what the earth I mean how how human of a thing to do by the way, to say the whole universe revolves around us. And Nicholas Copernicus was one of the earliest uh, astronomers to challenge this, at least to verbalize it. He studied uh, astronomy his entire life. He was a mathematician, uh, a Polish astronomer, and he published in 1543 on the revolutions of the celestial spheres, where he proposed a heliocentric theory to our solar system, essentially uh, that the Earth revolves around the sun, not the other way. Around, And this was right near the end of his life. And it really was a major paradigm shift, except for nothing changed. I mean, the Protestant Reformation was happening. And so Copernicus didn't want to ruffle any feathers within the Catholic Church. And uh, so it was right near the end of his life. Actually, nothing changed in the scientific community. Until another astronomer, an Italian guy, a little bit more feisty, Galileo, in 1632 published his life's work, which was a dialogue concerning two chief world systems. And he wasn't just posing a theory. Here's a hypothesis. He was saying Copernicus was right. And you have to be crazy to ignore the fact that we're revolving around the sun, not the other way around. You've got to believe it. And it got him into a ton of trouble with the Catholic Church. Uh, in fact, it was as late as the 1980s before the Catholic Church officially apologized for sending their inquisitors to the fault, you know, kind of like falsely accusing uh, Galileo and how they treated him uh, thereafter, But essentially, if you were to compare those two titles, I would say the Sermon on the Mount is not like uh, Copernicus's, here's some suggestions, here's a theory for how you can live your life. It's a lot more, and we'll see today, what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount is it's a dialogue concerning two chief world systems. And his goal is to get you to accept his way of life, to follow the way of Jesus, and not to follow the way of Of the world. And like any good preacher, Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's gonna land the plane and he is not satisfied, we have to admit, with us just gaining a few nice insights from his sermon. He's gonna call us to live. Differently. And I just want to challenge you, if you've been with us all summer, you spent the summer on the Mount with us, uh, to look back, maybe this week to read Matthew chapters 5-7 through seven and actually ask yourself, how is God calling you to change? Not what was your favorite verse or what was your favorite sermon, how is the Holy Spirit actually calling you to live your life differently in light of the way of Jesus? And even if today is one of your first times at Hill City Church, it's only three chapters long, so you can read the Sermon on the Mount this week as well and open yourself up to the inner work of the Holy Spirit. Let's go and jump into our teaching text for today, and I got to warn you, I probably could have made four sermons out of the passages we're going through today, but there's only so many weeks in the summer, and we got to get this thing wrapped up. All right. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is a teaching from Jesus, often referred to as the golden rule. And essentially what Jesus is telling us is God not only cares about your vertical relationship with him, he cares about your horizontal relationship with one another. You see this consistently throughout the New Testament. God cares how you treat people. I mean, uh, the Apostle John would go as far as to say that you're a liar if you say you love God, but you actually hate your neighbor. Uh, essentially, there, there's three different ways that you can interact with people. And uh, one of those is actually found not in the teaching of Jesus, but actually it's found in other faith traditions. It's called the silver rule. And it's a little bit less than the golden rule. It's to have a passive approach in your interactions to others. The silver rule essentially says this. Don't do to others what you don't like. And you can find that in in many different faith traditions. Don't, if you don't, okay, you're at a restaurant and you've got your plate of fries. Do you like it when someone without asking reaches over and grabs one of your fries? If you don't like it, then don't do that to your friend. Don't do that to me, by the way, because I don't like that. And so that's, that, that's but that's it. you see a passive approach in your interaction with others. And the problem with the silver rule is, is, not that there's anything wrong with following the silver rule, it's actually fine. But the problem with it is you can actually fulfill it while doing nothing while doing nothing. You can go and live by yourself and never interact with another person and you've accomplished the silver rule because you're not doing anything to others that you don't want them to do to you. And when you look at the teachings of Jesus, he calls us not to a passive life. The second approach is the approach that, that we tend to fall into, uh, I would say naturally by our sinful nature, is a, to live a reactive life, to, to be reactive in our interactions with others. That's to do to others as they do to you. So if somebody does something to you, you're just going to react to it. And to every action, there's an equal and opposite. You didn't know it was a science lecture today, did you? And uh, no, but essentially, this is what we de- I would say this is what we default to as humans, right? That person hurt me, so the fair thing to do is for me to hurt them back. Jesus has already addressed this, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of the most ancient law codes, lex, uh, lex talionis, which is essentially an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the punishment. Fits the crime, And the problem with this is not that it's unfair, but the problem with this is that it keeps evil in circulation. There's so much evil in this world already, and if everyone lives a reactive life, someone does evil to you, you're going to do evil to them or do evil to others, and it's just more evil. You see that, how it multiplies sin in the world. And what God wants to do is he wants to redeem and renew the earth, which means he wants to take evil out of circulation and replace it with good. And so Jesus calls us to a greater righteousness, not an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but actually to turn the other cheek and to show mercy and grace even to our enemies. So you see that? And then the third approach, this is the approach that Jesus is saying we should have, is an active love. It means you do to others as you wish they would do to you. Even if they don't return the favor, even if they don't say thank you, even if they don't appreciate it, what you're going to do is you're going to be active in your life towards other people. Essentially, the golden rule is almost the exact same teaching of Jesus, which is uh, found in Leviticus 19.18. Another way that Jesus summarized the law and the prophets is to say, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so we're going to treat people the way that we want it to be treated. This is one of the be- I mean, it's like some of the best advice that you could get. Some of the best parenting advice, some of the best marriage advice, some of the best just human advice that you can get. And when Jesus says this fulfills the law and the prophets, what he's saying is instead of giving you a thousand different individual rules to govern every specific situation you find yourself in with people like the french fry situation. There's not a Bible verse on the french fry thing, right? But instead of doing that, he's gonna give you one all-encompassing principle to govern our interpersonal relationships. So that's what he means when he says, this is the essence of the law and the prophets. Interestingly, you can divide the Sermon on the Mount up into three sections. And uh, this really is the end of the main body of work, which begins in Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And here in Matthew chapter 7, 12, he's telling us what the fulfillment is. But really, everything in between, Jesus is, is uh, the main body of the Sermon on the Mount is the greater righteousness for his followers. So if you have the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes, be salt, be light, be a city set on a hill, it's all about our identity as citizens of heaven. The main body of the Sermon on the Mount has to do with the greater righteousness we are called to as followers of Jesus, his fulfillment, his authoritative instructions on the fulfillment of the law, and then the end, which we're about to get into, Jesus is calling for a decision, and he's giving us four different pairs of teaching. I love how Grant Osborne puts it. He says this, Jesus understanding. Undoubtedly intends that the whole sermon to be an exposition of the true meaning of the whole law as the Torah of the Messiah. That phrase is really important there. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Law of Moses. And what Jesus is doing, remember Moses went up on Mount Sinai, received the law, and he gave it to the Israelites. What Jesus is doing is he's, once again, up on a mountain, and he's giving not the law of Moses, he's giving the law of the Messiah. This is the way, this is is one of the most exhaustive teachings on what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. And so that we see really Matthew 7 verse 12, the golden rule is the end of the main body of work and we're going to move into the conclusion of the sermon. Not to be confused, this was not the conclusion of my sermon, This is we're going to get into the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount and we're going to, uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover but we're going to look at four different pairs, different contrasting pairs, three of them today and one next week, two ways, two trees, two followers and next week two Foundation. So if you're taking notes, that's a helpful way to think through these passages. Matthew 7, 13, Jesus continues. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. If you're taking notes, this is the first pair. Two ways, you have life or death. There's two ways that you can live your life, and these two ways are essentially the way of Jesus and any other way, the way of the world. I mean, it's kind of this idea that there's lots of different ways, there's lots of different paths that, that you might walk in life, and according to Jesus, there aren't. There's only two. You can live life the Jesus way, according to the kingdom of heaven, or you can live life any other way, and the difference is, is stark and staggering. It's the difference between life and... And death. There's a different starting place, there's a different pavement, there's a different crowd, and there's a different destination. And what I want to do is I just want to contrast these two different ways for you. Let's start with the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus begins with a narrow gate, a narrow gate. That's the entry point. The way of Jesus is exclusive to those who put their faith in him. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one. How many people? No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't get much more exclusive than that. The claims of Jesus Christ are by definition exclusive. He claims that His way is the only way. That's what it means to have the narrow gate. The, the second characteristic of the way of Jesus is it's a difficult path. It's a difficult path. Jesus in John sixteen thirty three says, "In the world you will have tribulation. Not you might." But he says, you will, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I know this is kind of shattering the American dream for so many people in the room, but Jesus is not trying to sell us on the gospel by promising us comfort or success or health or wealth or any of those other things. He's not trying to bait and switch. He's very honest about the fact that if we follow him, we're going to be walking a difficult path. And part of the difficulty of following the path of Jesus is there are rules to follow. There, there is an actual way. And have you ever had that where you're, you, you've got Siri giving you directions, right? And she says, you got to turn this way. And you're like, I know a better way. You, and it takes you like two hours. Out. You right? In our lives, what we like to do is we like to maintain control. We have a difficult time releasing control to Jesus, as Lord. And part of the difficulty of the path is that Jesus is going to say, no, you need to follow my way. You need to follow my directions for how you live your life. There's difficulty from spiritual warfare, the moment that you declare Jesus as Lord, the enemy declares war on you. And so we're entering into spiritual warfare. And there's also difficulty, I think Jesus maybe uh, primarily is thinking about the difficulty to his followers who would face persecution and resistance from hostility in this world. So I don't want to try and oversell it to you that it's it's going to be easy. And then the third characteristic of the way of Jesus is it's a small crowd. You look about, you you look around you and there's so many more people who are following the way of the world. Jesus in Matthew 22:14 14 says, For many are called, but few are chosen. And the point of that teaching from Matthew 22, it's, Jesus has just told the parable of the wedding feast. The point of that parable is not that few are chosen. The point of the parable is actually that many are called. This isn't that, that, that God only loves a few or that Jesus only died for a few. We know that God so loved the the whole world. So, so God desires every one of his creation to be drawn to a knowledge of the truth and to be drawn to repentance and a genuine faith in him. If you read Matthew 22, and I would encourage you to do so, the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus tells this story where the king, supposed to be him, is throwing a feast, which is basically the kingdom of heaven, right? It's a party. And he's, he keeps trying to invite people, but people keep declining, He's like, why would you decline? The, this party is off the chain, right? The kingdom of heaven is where you want to be. And so he keeps sending out his, his servants with message, messages to invite people. And at the end of the parable, basically, he's like, listen, go invite literally anyone you find. Go to the streets, go to the corners, shout it from the mountaintops, tell everyone they are invited. But at the end of the parable, only few decide to the terms of entrance, Only few want to enter through the narrow gate required to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. So there's a narrow gate, it's a difficult path, and it's a small crowd. I'm not overselling it, am I? It's 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 really like Jesus is being very honest, brutally honest with what it means to follow him. But look at the fourth characteristic, and I believe the fourth is the most important one. It ends in life. It ends in life. The destination is of paramount importance. In John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I mean, what profit does it give you to gain the whole world and lose your soul, Jesus said. And so this is the only road that actually leads to life. And Jesus is right there on the path with us. Though it is a small crowd, there still is a crowd. We have brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us and help us along this path. And this path is the one that you want to be on. Because ultimately, it gives us hope of eternal life, even life after death. So that's the way of Jesus. Now let's look at the way of the world. We're going to cruise through the way of the world, but I just want to give you the attributes. It's the opposite of the way of Jesus. It's a wide gate, so it's kind of all-inclusive. I mean, anybody who's not following Jesus can be a part of that way. Uh, It's an easy path, and it's easy because there's no rules to follow, no truth you have to believe, no master you need to obey, and no gods you need to worship. It's the way of the world, and and, and really, it's any other way. It's any other life, any other worldview other than following Jesus Christ. It's a popular crowd. I mean, this is the age-old peer pressure, right? Everyone's doing it. Everyone's doing it. It's it's part of the difficulty of following Jesus when you're in an environment, when you're in a culture where it's it's countercultural. It's hostile at times, but... This way, the wide way, ends in destruction. And I would just say this to you. It doesn't matter how inclusive or easy or popular the way that you live life is if it ends in death. And that's what Jesus is trying to get us to really wrestle with and consider. He's trying to get us to make a choice. So which way are you living? Are you, if you're honest, are you living the way of Jesus or are you living the way of of the world let's look at the second pair Matthew chapter 7 verse 15 beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves you will recognize them by their fruits are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles so every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is, is using that judgment talk. The second pair that we're going to look at is two trees. You have a good tree, and you have a bad tree. A, a healthy tree, a diseased tree. And the trees are meant to represent teachers. Two different kinds of teachers. And if it helps, you can also write down that the, the difference between these two trees. Uh, teachers is true or false. And uh, really, the point that Jesus is, is really asking us to wrestle with is be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you listen to. You can put me under the microscope if you want, as I, I described uh, these qualifications of the voices that you allow into your life. We live in a world of podcasts and YouTube and blog posts and social media. It's never been easier for someone to get a platform. And anyone who wants to challenge historical or traditional beliefs can have their own hashtag hot take. Right? It's it's so easy. And the reality is, for followers of Jesus, I see this all the time in the church, it's very easy for us to pick and choose the kinds of truth that we wanna listen to. And what you end up is you end up with something called syncretism syncretism is a blending of ideologies it's a blending of beliefs and the best metaphor for blending is a smoothie is a blender and so think about this think about you know for for many christians maybe they do take some of jesus's teachings some of the sermon on the mount some of a true gospel and they pop it in the blender but then they also take a little bit of political ideology, or they also take a little bit of you, know, you know, this theory online, or they also take a little bit of what their friends think is popular, and they throw that in, and they hit the blend button, and you end up with syncretism. The only problem is when you're putting rotten or diseased fruit in your smoothie. And I see this all the time in the church and online. Be careful that you don't have a syncretistic belief or a worldview Jesus tells us that we need to be careful who we listen to. We're gonna look out for people who are wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, it's really easy to identify a wolf if they're wearing wolves' clothing, right? When you like, see a cult leader or you see someone, you're like, that is definitely not true, or a crooked politician, you're like, come on, seriously? right? When you see these overt, like that, I don't even need to look at your fruit because you are just sketchy from the get-go, right? That's a wolf in wolf's clothing. What's what's extra dangerous, Jesus is saying, is there are going to be wolves who say that they're Christians. They look like sheep, actually. And you have to look closely. And you're like, is there a wolf under there? Right? And how do we determine who we listen to? You have to measure a tree by its fruit. There's three different, different kinds of fruit for us to measure. The first one is the fruit of character. What does their life look like? This is the danger of listening to internet or TV personalities. Do you know that person? No. How do you know what their life looks like? How can you actually measure their character? Do you see them interact with their spouse or their kids? Do you see, like, you see what I'm saying? This is a danger. You have to measure someone. It's really helpful to measure someone by their, their character. Do they have the fruit of the Spirit? It's important to remember the fruit of the Spirit, to memorize that passage, not only to look at your own life, but to look at the lives of the people that you follow to see if their lives are, are more like Christ or less. And so you just got to look at someone's character. Look at the fruit of their life. The second fruit is you're looking at the fruit of followers. Now, really careful when we talk about the fruit of followers. We're not looking at how many followers do they have, we're looking at the kinds of followers that they have. Essentially, we're looking at the character of their followers. Not just the character of the teacher, but the character of their followers. Because it's actually, numbers can be very deceiving. In fact, you might, you might find someone online, they're like, but they have 250K followers. They got 250,000 followers on Instagram. That doesn't make them right. And the reality is, sometimes... and it, if you have a lot of followers or a huge platform, it doesn't also necessarily make you wrong either. I just think it's not a great metric to use. Uh, influencers like, are able to post things in their algorithm and all that sort of stuff. But the reality is that the number of followers may indicate that someone is, is teaching or preaching a gospel that appeals to the crowds that are on the wide path. And that's why numbers can be extra deceiving, that in some cases, not in every case, but in some cases, the more followers a person has, the more cautious you need to be in listening to them. Now, it's easy for me to say because I don't have a lot of followers. Okay, <laughs> but what kinds of people are following them? I mean, this is, like if you're listening to a pastor, if you're, trying, if you're new to Hill City Church, you should actually look at the kinds of people who go to our church. Do their lives look more like Christ? Are they confessing their sins and experiencing repentance? Are they, are, are they experiencing sanctification? Do, do, do you see the fruit of the Spirit here within our community? That's a good sign that the gospel I'm preaching is a true gospel, right? It's not my job to change all of your lives, but it's my job to preach the truth and let the Holy Spirit grow fruit in your life. So that's the second fruit that you need to look at. Is this helpful? Yeah. It's very important for us to get this right. And then the third fruit is the fruit of their teaching. You, you also do just have to measure the message and be like, wait, I was reading this in the Bible and you said something that seems like the exact opposite of what I read. Uh, are they speaking the truth? Measure it against the inspiration of scripture. Uh, that's why it's important to read your Bible and not just accept whatever you read online. Now, this one is so important that I actually want to give you a few false gospels that I think are prevalent. There's more than just these three, but I want to give you three false gospels that I see buzzing around online and and sometimes encounter in the church. And uh, I was a good preacher this week, so I made all of these start with the letter R, okay? You've got some alliteration going on to help you remember them. Uh, You can write down the letter R three times. The first false gospel is a rules gospel, it's making Jesus's way harder than Jesus himself made it. It's this idea of if, if Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate and there's a difficult path, they're gonna take that difficult path and they're gonna make it a tight rope that you have to walk on. Uh, it's, it's, if I wasn't using alliteration, I would call this the legalism gospel. Salvation by rule keeping. Right, follow the rules, be good enough, be obedient, and essentially it's a works-based salvation. Uh, it's this idea that Jesus already told us, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. That's hard enough as it is, okay? Don't add rules upon rules upon rules on top of that. This is primarily what Jesus was combating in the leaven of the Pharisees. Uh, Matthew 23, verse four. Jesus says, they, the Pharisees, tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And so what goes hand in hand with a legalistic or a rules-based gospel is hypocrisy. You'll see a teacher who has this really strict teaching, and if you do look at the fruit of their character, their life looks absolutely nothing like the message that they say. They need to practice what they preach. It's the first false gospel. Be careful if you start hearing that gospel. The second false gospel is a relaxed gospel. I don't think the word "relaxed" is the best, but it starts with an R, so we'll run with it. This is essentially making Jesus' way easier, okay? So both are distortions. One is on one end, and one is on the other end. It's essentially what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. It's a belief-only gospel or a confession of faith with your mouth only gospel, and there is, it's Christianity without the cross. There's no talk of judgment. There's no talk of wrath. There's no talk of, of, of accountability. There's no need for repentance. There's no need for obedience. It's this cheap grace. It's this idea that, that, that there's this narrow gate, and all you have to do to be saved is acknowledge that there is a narrow gate. You don't have to actually enter through the narrow gate or even follow the difficult path. Does that make sense? And it should be like, no, the gate is great. I love Jesus. He's the best. I'm just going to live my life on the wide path. That's a relaxed gospel and is just as much a distortion of the truth as the rules-based gospel. Be careful on either end. And then you have the third one. And I think this third one is... The most prevalent in our day, in our age, it's a relativistic gospel. Relativism is the best R word, by the way. This most accurately describes uh, this gospel. It's essentially that all roads lead to life, and so you might hear someone say, "You got to, you, you got to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus because he's one of the best ways to live." But there's all sorts of other faith traditions, all sorts of other lifestyles, alternative lifestyles, other, you know, truths. It's this idea that truth is not that which corresponds to reality. Truth almost becomes private property. You get to decide what your own truth is. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. When you hear someone using those kind of terms, that's relativism. And according to Jesus, he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. And so a relativistic gospel, while it appeals to the masses, listen, I'm going to be a Christian, but who am I to tell everyone else that there's only one way? Well, if there is only one way to life, then we better tell people. Does that make sense? Even though it's, it's more difficult to acknowledge that, but this is just the, the, the truth. So those, three, those are three distortions of the truth, three false gospels. I want to give you a fourth R word. It's the real gospel. I had to throw in the word real. The real gospel. The accurate gospel. The true gospel. It corresponds, it's grounded in scripture. Uh, Paul puts it really well. Because really, the issue here that we're dealing with, and that Jesus is dealing with, has to do with the idea of what role does obedience and, and faith and all of that play. Paul lines it out really clearly in Ephesians 2. I think it's really helpful. That we're saved by grace through faith for good works. Not just with our mouth, not just a verbal confession. I do think that Jesus is the son of God. Guess what James, the brother of Jesus says? Even the demons believe that. And that that should shock us, it should wake us up that it's not just this mental acknowledgement that Jesus is the son of God, that we actually have to walk this path. We actually have to follow Jesus. Uh, We're all by nature children of wrath. Dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his one and only Son to this earth, who lived a perfect life. And then he died on the cross in our place and on our behalf. And he was raised from the dead three days later in victory, conquering sin, death, and the devil. And because of that, that's the gospel. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you can be saved by God's grace putting your faith in Jesus Christ, but you have to to know that he expects you to follow him into the good works which he has prepared in advance that you would walk in them. And I would even go as far as to say, as someone who's willing to admit, I do believe that Jesus is the son of God and he did all those things on the cross, but they don't have any intention of walking the way of Jesus, I don't think that's the kind of faith that we're saved by. We're saved by God's grace through faith, but we have to acknowledge that Jesus calls us to follow him, to follow him. We have to be honest with the gospel. Not that we're saved by our works, but our good works are evidence that you have genuinely put your allegiance in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Faith is not just a a verbal confirmation, it's a life, it's a trust that you have in God. And I wanna invite you, maybe you've you've found yourself falling into some of these false gospels, or maybe you've never heard the gospel before, and this is so exciting for me to, to have the honor to be able to preach the gospel for you today. The Holy Spirit is drawing you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Today can be the day that you put your full trust and faith in Jesus Christ and receive the real gospel. Today can be the very first day that you pray that prayer and ask God to forgive your sin and lead your life. And the way that Jesus instructed us to do so is through a ceremony called baptism. And I would encourage you, we've got Church in the Park in two weeks, Sunday, September 4th. We've got a handful of people already signed up to get baptized. If you've never been baptized and and you do have a faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you to get baptized in obedience to Christ. And maybe today you've never responded to the gospel, or maybe you've responded to a false gospel, but never really accepted the real gospel. To sign up and get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the way that Jesus commanded us to do. I've been thinking about baptism a lot as we head into church in the park. And I just want you to know, if you're on the fence, I'm praying for you. I think there's so many, so many people in churches or even in just in, in their walk in life that there's on the fence. And here's what I've been praying this week, okay? I've been praying this week, if you're on the fence, that you would take the plunge. thinking about baptism, and we baptize like full immersion, I believe that's the the New Testament way, fully dunked underwater, right, we do that, but but if you think about that, I've been thinking about this picture of someone who invites you over to a pool party, okay, and you're like, oh, I'm so, I love swimming, I want to go to this pool party, so you go, you get your swimsuit, all that stuff, and you arrive at the pool party, and you dip your toe in the water, you're like, this, I love swimming, this is my favorite thing, and you take your foot out of the water, you're like, this is my favorite. I love swimming. Everyone who's in the pool would be like, if you love swimming, then why don't you just get in? And I think that that dipping your toes in Christianity, dipping your toes and following the way of Jesus is where a lot of people are at in the church today. And I want to, I'm praying for you to jump in. I mean, that. That, like actually getting in the Boise River, that is like taking a plunge, right? But I, I, I think there's, there's not an accident that Jesus calls us to a significant step to mark the most significant commitment that you will ever make in your entire life. And if you've never been baptized, I want to challenge you to get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Labor Day weekend, you can sign up online, hillcityboise.org. baptism. Anyone excited to celebrate baptisms in two weeks? Anyone? Yeah! That's right. All right, let's look at the last pair that Jesus talks about here. Matthew chapter seven, verse 21. Not everyone, this is a haunting passage to end on. I, I recognize that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is on judgment day, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's the sermon for today, have a blessed week. (laughs) This is haunting, this is a mic drop, this is Jesus at the end, like, he's calling us to a decision. He's not leaving us the option of being some nice, good teacher who gets little quotes on Hallmark cards, like, he's calling, like, follower, follower. Not only does Jesus say there are false teachers we need to watch out for, he says there are false followers. Churches are full of people who think that they're followers of Jesus, but they're actually not. They're living their life on the wide path. So how do you know if you are one? Is that an important question? It's a very, very important question. And, and can you, before you get to Judgment Day, can you have any sort of assurance that you've been saved, that you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption? I think you can. First, we have to identify who are these false followers? Jesus says that these, and this is crazy to think about, these people have used the name of Jesus, maybe they've manipulated the name of Jesus, taken the Lord's name in vain, right, in order to prophesy Cast out demons and perform many miracles. I don't know about you, but I'm a vocational pastor, and I have, to this day, this might change, I've never cast out a demon, okay? So if you look at the resume of some of these people, they've actually done some pretty impressive things for the sake of, you know, the name of Jesus. But their problem is they think that the works that they've done, and I don't think it's a mistake that the works that they are doing are outward evident, like applause of man type works. Remember what Jesus said about practicing your righteousness in order to to be seen by men? What does he say about that in Matthew 6? They already have their reward. There's no eternal reward waiting for someone who's only in it for the applause of man. I, I think that's kind of the clues us in a little bit on the motives in the heart of these false followers. So they're, they're doing these outward impressive like things. And I would just say this to you. Going to church on a Sunday doesn't save you. Giving money to a church doesn't save you. Singing, singing a, song, a worship song doesn't save you. Right, Even serving on a volunteer team, which by the way, we'd love to get you plugged into a volunteer serving team. (laughs) Resumes, their problem is yes, they're doing things for God, but they've never actually placed their full faith in Jesus Christ. And I think what you would see if you were to identify the lives of these people is you would look underneath the surface and you would see a deep level of hypocrisy. Douglas Sean O'Donnell puts it like this. They list these false followers the gifts of the spirit, but not the what? The fruit of the Spirit. They boast of great religion, but not true religion. I think we have to be really careful about getting really caught up in the gifts of the Spirit and the outward works and all these sort of things. And, and Jesus, he calls us to follow him. He calls us to obedience. He calls us to, to do good works. We're not saved by those good works. That's why we can't confuse these things. Don't put the cart before the horse. But if you were to really look, how, how do you know that you're se- sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit? Look at your life. And just ask yourself, are you growing the Holy Spirit? Or are you growing the fruits of the Spirit in your life? Have you actually put your faith genuinely in Christ Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? And you're doing your best to walk by the Holy Spirit every single day. And when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, you're going to be obedient. You're going to confess. You're going to be restored and reconciled. Those are the kinds of things. And if you look at your life and you be like, yeah, that's me. I have a genuine faith in the accurate picture of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I'm going to be obedient to what the Holy Spirit calls me to, and, and, and I'm going to grow the fruit of the Spirit. He's going to grow that fruit in me. Then you can be certain that you are on the path that leads you towards life. So I, I hate to like scare, like scare you, like you might not be a Christian and send you out here for the week. But the reality is there are things that if you look at the way of Jesus, if you're following the way of Jesus, then you're on the path that leads to life. But we know, I think we all know when we're doing things to be seen or we're, doing th- we're, we're even using or manipulating God's name and we think that somehow that obedience to Jesus in some areas makes up for disobedience overall. And I would be really, really cautious if there's areas of your life maybe even the majority of areas of your life, don't think for a second that good works in some areas are somehow scrubbing out the sin or the disobedience in other areas of your life. So here's the point. The point I think that Jesus is making here, and this is pretty much the point of our church, follow Jesus with, everyone say it, everything. This is our vision statement. We wanna follow Jesus with everything because he first loved us. We follow Jesus with everything, every day, Every, every dollar, every relationship. You want to follow Jesus with your future, with your decisions, with your thoughts, with your words, with your actions. Follow Jesus with everything. everything. And I just want to challenge us as a church. Are there areas of your life that you are still not following Jesus with? Where you've said to Jesus, you can be Lord over 50% or 49% of my life but I'm going to keep these other areas on my own. You get to be Lord over these portions, but you don't get to be Lord over all. That's the kind of faith that Jesus is confronting, a partial faith. And we just want to be the kinds of people that you're willing to even pray that prayer and say, Holy Spirit. Open up your heart. Search me if there's any grievous way in me. Restore a clean heart within me. And you're going to pray and you're going to ask God. And be open to actually obeying the Holy Spirit when he shows you a way that you need to follow Jesus with everything. Here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying it's decision time. It's time to make a choice. And uh, this is difficult for us. Do you ever get choice paralysis at the ice cream shop? And you're like, why do they have thirty-one flavors? I only need three. I just it's too difficult, right? And you look at the way the ways that you could live life. There's all these different ways. all oh, you could live this way or that way, or the way of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, No, no, no. There's not actually all these different ways. How many ways are there? Hold up the number of fingers. There's two oh yeah, there, there, there's two ways. Okay? There's two ways, Jesus says. I've been using the number two all day. Okay, anyways, two ways. And he's saying, you can follow the way of the world, you can follow me. It's decision time. It's decision time. And it's hard to be confronted with that kind of exclusive call. And yet, Jesus is the Son of God, and he is, it is fully within his right and his authority to call us to something like that. John Stott says this, everybody resents being faced with the necessity of a choice. You can't straddle that fence forever. You've got to Take the plunge. But Jesus will not allow us to escape it. He will not allow us to escape it. It's decision time. And Moses did the same thing when he gave the Torah. And the end of the Torah, Deuteronomy, is the the fifth book. And uh, you have the wilderness generation. That's the children that were born and were raised in the wilderness. And they're about to enter into the promised land. And Moses has this beautiful speech In Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, he says this I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And you can imagine, Moses, by the way, is not going to enter into the promised land. He's going to die on a mountain right outside the promised land. And you can imagine, like, he's been with these people for decades, he loves them. And this is him admonishing and imploring them, he, please choose life. Please choose life. And I can't make the choice for you. No one in your life can make the choice for you. Every single one of us must decide to enter through the narrow gate, to walk the difficult path, to eat fruit from a good tree, to bear good fruit, and to live like Jesus is Lord. Let's stand and worship. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.